Have you ever been part of a family organization or another structure where there was complete peace and harmony? As, as I've said before, I grew up in southwest Minnesota in a little town called Lake Benton where my dad was pastor for 22 and a half years. And moved there when I was seven, October of 1990. And we're there and and lived most of my life there. But I have two sisters and a brother. And um, you can imagine having two boys and two girls in the same family that there was a lot of harmony and just just peace all around, as a few of you were smirking. Uh, There was not. Uh, there were times where, especially with my sisters, my, own, my, my other sister and I, we, we fought like cats and dogs. Uh, one person would say black, the other would say white, and we just butt heads. And it would be, as you look back at it now, it was probably over some stupid stuff. But we still fought a lot. Uh, we loved each other, but we fought, okay? There's, there's, that, there's always that tension. Love, fighting, love, and fighting. Uh, but it's what's been interesting as we've gotten older, and I'm the oldest in my family, and as we've gotten older, as things have happened, it's been interesting to see how we've grown closer as siblings. Even over the past year, uh, with us leaving Iowa and moving up here and and having uh, Josiah and now having another one very soon, It's been interesting to see how how God is using those circumstances to draw us more closer together. It's been fun to see that. We still have probably our disagreements at times, but we we love each other better. We are more unified, if you will, than we were when we were kids, and it's fun to see. We come to a passage of Scripture this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where, where we have a family that needs to be unified, and, and, and it's the church family. And just like unity is necessary for a family to get along, so unity is essential to a church family. Unity is essential to a church family. So that's my challenge to you this morning. As we look at this passage of Scripture my challenge is let us be unified as a church family. Now, I'm not saying that because I don't think there isn't unity. I think there is in this church, and it's great to see. But as we've come through a very difficult 2020 with the, the pandemic and political issues and so much so forth, we see a lot of disunity in our world. It's a greater opportunity for us as a church body of believers to remain unified. And I want to give you four reasons from this passage of Scripture why you and I, as a body of believers, as a church family, need to be unified. The first one comes from verses 12 through 14, and it simply is this. We are members of the body of Christ. Paul says, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body be many are one body, so also is Christ. We are members together of the body of Christ. And he says a couple of things here. He says that the church is a unified body with many members. The idea, that's the idea of the word one. Okay, unity, togetherness, 
And the body here, is, as he will use this over and over again, he uses it in a physical sense. We'll see that in verses 15 through 20. But he also uses it in a metaphorical sense. And a metaphorical sense here is described as the church body. So he's talking about the church body. The church body is one. Or you could substitute the word church here. The church is one and has many members. It's interesting that he uses the word one, unity, uniformity, and he uses the word many or many members to show diversity or just uh, numerous in, uh, by way of count. And the concept here is that there are many parts to the body of Christ, but in the many there is unity. You know, an illustration might be a computer. I've got one up here that's doing the PowerPoint. I have an iPad <clears throat> as well, which I love. I love having notes on my iPad. It's fun. Um, but, but a computer or an iPad has many parts, don't it? It has many parts that go together that, that allow you to type and to play and to um, view documents, to post on social media. But there's so many different parts that go into it, right? There's, there's, there's the hard drive, there's the micro disk, there's the SD card, there's, there's so many different parts to a computer. But you, you have one computer. You don't have many different computers and with one. You have one computer. It's put, all put together as one. And so that's the, that's the church. We're put together as one. We're different people. We come from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different, different skill sets. And yet in the many, we are one. Paul also notes that every member belongs in the body. Look at the, the, the phrase there, but all the members of that one body being many are one body. So yes, there, there's, there's diversity among us all, but we're all part of the same body. No one is excluded. You don't have one member here that is outside looking in. We're all together. Paul uses Christ as, as an example of this. He just, he, he's, he's, you draw in the example, just as Christ is one with all of his parts belonging to his body, so is the church one with all its different parts. And how is this unity enabled? How is the church unified? It's unified by the baptism of the Spirit. Verse 13, For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have been all made to drink into one Spirit. The, the, the word by here, for by, shows the reason or the means of the unity. And it's through the Spirit. It's the baptism of the Spirit. And, and briefly, the baptism of the Spirit occurs at salvation. When you or I accepted Christ as our Savior, we confessed that we were a sinner. We needed His salvation to have eternal life. We received that free gift. We were baptized in a, in a, in a spiritual sense by the Spirit into Christ. And at that time, we became part of His, his body. His church. His church universal. So the Spirit baptism, baptism of the Spirit happens at salvation. It's, it's a once, in a, uh, a one-time occurrence. It doesn't happen again. It, it, it happens at salvation. And, and the point that Paul brings up here is the baptism of the Spirit is the means of unification. We were all baptized. The word baptized means to dip or immerse and just refers to the process of joining an organization. And here, it's joining the body of Christ. 
And this baptism wasn't done by you or I. It was done by the Spirit. So the, the membership in the body of Christ, and, and Paul is writing to a group of believers in Corinth talking about their membership, but we can also view it as our membership in this body of Christ and in the larger body of Christ, what is known as the universal church, is a work of the Spirit, not of us. Yes, yes, we, we do give testimony. We ask permission of the church, if you will, to join. I know a few months ago, Sue, my, uh, my wife, joined. Um, had they given their testimonies before the deacons, and, and we accepted that, we, and we presented it to you, and you accepted it. So there is that human side of things, but there is more important the spiritual side of things, that salvation became part of the body of Christ. Notice, notice who the Spirit baptizes. Look at that little three-letter word, all. We were all baptized into one body. And he gives the distinction whether it doesn't matter whether Jews or Greeks, okay, believing people, pagan people, slaves or free, doesn't matter what ethnicity, what social identity you have, you became a believer in Jesus Christ, you were baptized into his body. Paul writes about this in Galatians 3:28, said that there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free. There is neither female, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We're all one. We're all, we're all together. Yes, we're, we're different, different ideas, different backgrounds, but we're all one. Paul, again, Paul also uses the analogy of drinking to, to show that every believer has the same spirit. We have all been made to drink into one spirit. and So just like the spirit makes the believer one, he also is one. So we're not being part of a multi-deity as some in that world believe. No, we're, we're baptized into one spirit. And spirit is unified, so we are unified. But Paul also notes here in this just little, little phrase, he says at the end in verse uh, 14, being unified as the church does not discount the individuality of every member. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. And, and Paul will repeat this phrase throughout this passage of Scripture, but he does so to remind us that despite our unity, there is also diversity. There is also individuality in each one of us. As, as many of you are members of this church, you make up a whole church, but you're also unique individual so you don't lose your identity when you become part of the church. You keep it. And it's a unique contribution you have to his body. And Paul reminds also that, that there are many other believers who make up the body of Christ. So it's not just you or me, it's so many other people. It's your neighbor down the street who might go to a different church but still proclaim and testifies of Christ's death on the cross and believes that for salvation he makes up the church. So the body has unity, but there's also diversity. There's also uniqueness to it as each member has its own, his or her own individuality. And that leads me to ask this question by way of application this morning. Are you living like a member of the Christ's body? 
Are you living like a member of Christ's body? Ephesians 5.8 says this, and I've referenced this before, but it bears repeating. For you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. You and I have been baptized by the Spirit into one body. We, we have been saved through the blood of Christ. I trust that's your testimony this morning. Are we living like that? We're part of the body of Christ. Are we reflecting that to the world? We talked about this morning in our, in our discussion of the pastoral qualifications. Uh, Cindy was one to make note that in discussing one of them that the pastor has to maintain his characteristics. Why? Because the, the outside community is watching. And if the pastor in the community reflects poorly on his character, it's not only a reflection upon him, it's a reflection on the church. So that people can look at that and say, man, I don't want to go to that church. Look at that pastor. He's not acting very like Christ. And the same warning is for you and I. If we call ourselves believers in Jesus Christ, we're members of his body, we better act like it. We better act like Christ would act. We better live like Christ would live. Say what Christ would say, regardless of what's going on in our world and in our situation. Are we living like members of Christ's body? Are are we acting like we don't even belong here? Live as a member of his Christ, the body of Christ. You've been put into this place. And the, and the encouragement for you that I would have for you this morning is to live like a member of his body. Secondly, second reason I have for you to, to be unified is that we are placed by God in the body as he chooses. Now, I want to go through these, these examples. So Paul uses several physical examples to show diversity within the body. Notice there in verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Is it not therefore of the body? He asks some questions here to, to point to a conclusion he wants us to see, and they're all hypothetical. The point being that the foot is part of the body regardless of whether it wants to or not. Okay? Our feet are part of our body. It can't, the foot, your foot can't get up one day and say, you know what, I'm out of here. I'm not part of the body. Yeah, it is. Just because it wants to be something else doesn't mean it's not part of the body. The eye, or the ear, excuse me. The ear should say, verse 16, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Okay, Paul says that doesn't matter. It's still part of the body. Each one plays a part, regardless of how it feels. And there's so many parts that are, that are, uh, that are included it does function well. It's, Paul, again, asked the hypothetical in verses 17 and 18. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole, bo- whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? It's, every, part, every part of the body has a part to play. There isn't one function of the body that's more important than the others. Each has a role to play. And we, we can think of our own physical bodies. We're thankful as, as the years get on that they function the way they do because... There's some of those parts start to go. But as we think about them working together, it shows that when they work together, we funct- the body functions well. 
And using that illustration, Paul then says, God has put us in the body where he does because it pleases him. But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body as he has pleased. The, the verb I set here, has set here has the idea of to establish or arrange. And the construction of the verb here shows that God is active in establishing the believer's role in the body. He puts the pieces where he wants them. The illustration might be a, a playing with toys, and you're trying to construct a particular scenario. The toys don't have any say in that, do they? Especially, I remember growing up playing with army men. You remember the little green army men? I used to play with those a lot. I had a big bucket full of them. Uh, and you would put them wherever you wanted them because you were playing war, and, and it was so exciting as a little kid to use your imagination. But you put them wherever you wanted them because you, you figured, okay, this would be the best place as you're imagining your brief uh, role as a general in a, in a warlike scenario. Well, God's using the individual believers and putting them in those positions where he wants them. And so he does it as he pleases. That's the idea. The, the, the phrase just as points to the reason why God has put them in the position is because it pleases him. The word please here has the idea of, to, of will or wish. The psalmist talks about the will of the Lord, doing what the Lord pleases him by saying in Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in seas and in all deep places. So he set the members of the body the way he wants because he wants to, because it pleases him. God determines how the members are to be put in the body, not believers. Because quite frankly, it's his body after all. God puts us where he has us. God puts us in the body of Christ the way he wants because it's his body. So he knows where you and I are to fit. He knows what roles you are to play. He knows what ideas you can bring to the table. He knows how you can function best. And so he puts you and I where he wants us to be. And then Paul asks the question, again, by, by way of emphasis in verse 19 and 20, and if they were all one member, where would the body be? You know, if the body was a hand, where would the body be? There wouldn't be any body. But now indeed, again, he, he, this is emphasis for Paul, but now indeed there are many members, yet one body. The body and its members work together. The body and its members work together. So it all works together. The body isn't one single unit, it is many together. And God has put those units, those members in place for a purpose, because it pleases Him. And that leads me to ask this question this morning. Are you satisfied with where God has placed you in His body? I'll tell you when this really hit me was a few years ago. I got married three years, a little over three years ago. Moved from southwest Minnesota down to uh, Ankeny, Iowa. And... Uh, Got married, moved to a new place, and all, all that fun stuff. And, and that was really hard for me. 
It was hard for me to move to a new area. That's, I'm an introvert by nature, so change is, is hard for me. I've gotten better over the years. But it was also hard to get in the fact that I, I had another person in my life. You know, I had that new relationship. I was working on that. And I, not only was I working on that, I was living in a new area. And I, I tended to shy away from possible ministry opportunities. And my wife came to me one day, and, and she has to repeatedly, had repeatedly during that first couple of years reminded me of this. She says, you know, David, God has placed you here for a reason. And her point in making that statement was, God has placed you here. He's got a reason for you being here. He's got a, he's got a, uh, a, a role for you to play, so embrace it. Be a part of it. And you may be in that situation this morning. I, you may not want to be here. You may be struggling with something in your life and you used to feel like this is not the place for me. I need to be somewhere else. I need to move back to another area, whatever it might be. But I want to ask you the question this morning, are you satisfied with where God has placed you in his body? God is the one who does the arranging. God is the one who's done the placing, even if it's in circumstances we aren't comfortable with. But he still wants you here. He still has you here. Are you embracing that role or are you rejecting it? And saying, God, you don't know what you're doing. I'm going to make some plans on my own and do, do some of my own things. Now, Paul says, he says, God has placed each member in the body as it pleases him. God is the decider, not you, not me. Are we satisfied with where he's placed us? Thirdly, from verses 21 to 26, I think we can also see a third reason is that we are dependent upon each other for unity. Verse 21, and the eye, again, he uses illustrations here. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, verse 22, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Paul points out that everyone is necessary. Again, draws upon the body illustration. The eye needs the hand. It can't say to the hand, I've got no need of you. The head can't say to the feet, I have no need of you. Well, if you don't have feet, you're not going anywhere. If you don't have an eye, you can't, or if you don't have a hand, you can't see, you can't grab things, you can't obtain things. So the, all the parts of our bodies need each other. It's necessary. The word need means to that which should happen or be supplies because needed. We the eye needs that the the eye needs the hand, the head needs the feet because without both they op, they don't operate well. So there's necessary things there. Everyone is necessary. Every part is necessary. And Paul makes the, the, the observation that those who serve in less admirable positions receive greater honor. Verse 23, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on those we bestow greater honor. And our presentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable, our, our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to the part which lacks it. The word seem here in verse 22, which seem to be weaker, are necessary. The idea is to, to, to appear, to understand, 
It's a viewpoint. So Paul's saying those members of a body which we think are weak, they still are necessary. And the members of the body that we bestow upon, we think don't have less, uh, less honor or are actually more honorable. So we, ha- we, have, we have in, our, in ourselves the, those things that we bestow greater honor on that we don't think are. Those parts experience, that experience the greater honor are protect, that we make sure they are protected from public view. The word honor here has the idea of reverence or esteem. So those things, those parts of our bodies that we don't find very honorable, that are, don't, are considered to be weak, unnecessary or really necessary, and therefore we, we cover them, we make sure they're taken care of. And therefore, because we value them and we don't want to see the, the less honorable parts, we don't want to make those known, we cover them and therefore we show we honor them. The more honorable parts do not need to be hidden, therefore do not receive any more reverence than what they already receive. So the, you know, the arms, the head, we, we normally leave that uncovered and we don't need to cover that up because that's, that's, that's something we revere or honor. And so Paul's point in all of this is to show that God has brought the body together so that the members who do not serve in high recognition positions receive great reverence. But God composed the body, body, verse 24, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. The illustration would be uh, the, the CEO of a major company awarding the janitor employee of the year. Think about that. Now, I worked in janitorial for about seven, eight years, so I understand how vital that function is to the workings of a business. But normally, a janitor doesn't win employee of the year. It's just, it's just not that highlightable of a position. Right? So you wouldn't think a major CEO of Charles Schwab or some big company, U.S. Bank, would give employee of the year to a janitor. Their job isn't that glorious. But that's the same picture. God gives honor to those who serve in less honorable positions. God God honors that. He honors the person who cleans the toilets after service on a Sunday morning. I know we have have a cleaning lady who does that, and I understand that. But God does give honor to those less distinguishable positions. So even I, as a pastor in this position, there are those that God has bestowed greater honor than myself. They serve in so many different ways. It could be greeting somebody on a Sunday morning. That's not really an honorable position. It's just the way of, that we do things to, to greet and say hi to everybody and, and welcome everybody. But God does honor those people who serve in that way, those members who serve in that way. And in verse 25, the result is that we are working together as a harmonious unit, that there should be no schism in the body. The word schism means division. Okay? So the result is that we share in each other's lives. There's no division when we are dependent upon each other. We function well. We don't conflict with each other. Sharing in each other's lives prevents that. This was, a, this was an issue Paul had to deal with. Jump back to chapter 11 here in 1 Corinthians. 
In verse 18, Paul says, For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. So he's, he's, he's talking to a church that's divided. And he says, when you share in each other's lives, when you, when you realize that you've been put in your position for a reason, and that perhaps you're not getting the greater honor because someone else is doing it in a, in a less honorable position, there is no schism. There's no division when that happens. You realize that there are, there's honor everywhere, and, and some get more than you, and that's okay. that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. The idea of the word care is, is care here means to attend to or be concerned about. All members of the body of Christ should have such an interest in the lives of each other that it shows itself in a caring attitude. Mean that we should be so interested in each other's lives, what's going on, what's good, what's bad, that we're showing the same level of care for this believer as we show for the other believer. There's no, there's no favoritism going on. It's the same level of care. And it develops itself. And so in these two ways, as he illustrates, that if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. And, or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. This care is so effective and spread out that whether suffering or joy is experienced by an individual member, all experience it. I don't know if you've ever been in a church like that where, where someone had an accident or tragedy happens, and, and even though you may not know that person personally, because of their part of the body of Christ, you feel it. Or perhaps there's been a great occasion for rejoicing by another individual in the church and I've been a part of those too where, where you hear that good news and, and automatically you rejoice. You say, great, I'm, I'm so happy for them. That is how a body of, the body of Christ should function so that whenever there's suffering or joy, we're so much dependent upon each other, we so much share in each other's lives that we cannot help but sorrow when they are suffering or rejoice when there is joy. And that leads me to ask this point of application this morning. Are you willing to depend upon fellow believers in the church? Was there a, a Butterfield who was an English professor and uh, a avowed lesbian, atheist, who got saved several years ago, made this statement in her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, an English Professor's Journey into Christian Faith. She said this, there is no such thing as an independent Christian. We all need each other. And my question to you this morning is, are you willing to depend upon each other? And I say that because there's a tendency in my life to say, no, no, I've got it. I don't need to call that person. or I don't need to text that person. I'll, I'll take care of it. I don't want to bother anybody. Can I challenge you from this portion of Scripture? Bother people? Share? We're all in this together. I mean, that's a popular phrase right now. We're all in this together. Well, this is me even more important in the church. We're all in this together, so share away. That doesn't mean that you unload everything, but when there is a need, reach out. There's no shame in that. We all need each other. We all need to function as the body of Christ. 
Send a text message. Send an email. Make a phone call. There's, do that. That is part of being part of the body of Christ. We all need to depend upon one another. And that's humbling because we don't want to do that, do we? We feel like we're independent. We've got to do a go-getter. You know, we're, we're northern Minnesotans. We always push through it. You know, we, we keep going, but there's sometimes we fall flat on our face, and guess what? We need help. That is where we step in as the body of Christ. We care for one another with the same level of care, and we function so much that reflect Christ in the way we care for each other. Are you depending upon your fellow members, fellow believers in the church? Last reason for unity this morning comes from verses 27 through 31. And the last reason is that we are to excel in our service. Verse 27, now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Paul uses this phrase to point out that we belong to Christ. Again, this seems like a given, but Paul uses this term time and time again to remind the believers that their bo- the body of, doesn't belong to them, it belongs to Christ. Therefore, we must function as such. The word individually shows uh, an individual part of the body. So, so Paul, using this phrase, shows that each individual, each member of the body has a part of Christ. He mentioned this. Uh, another translation reads it this way, and I like the way it says. This is the New Living Translation of, of this verse, verse 27. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is a part of it. There's not one person in this morning who is, who, under the sound of my voice, who has not been saved, is not part of the body of Christ. We all are part, regardless of who we are. We belong to Him. And God has appointed each member to serve in different functions. You know, a still illustration would be a, a well oiled company has many people serving in different positions. You got CEO, you got CFO, you got. Management officials, you have techs, you have janitors, you have common laborers. Everybody works together in those different positions. And God uses each one of us in those different positions. And Paul says in verse 28 that God's pointed these in the church. First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles and gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. I'm not going to delve too deeply into each position, but Paul appears to give priority. He says, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So those have the priority, and some of those offices don't exist anymore. Okay, we don't have apostles. I saw one ad yesterday for a church online somewhere uh, that one of my social media friends is promoting, and the, the title for the office is the chief apostle. Well, you know, that doesn't exist anymore. There aren't any prophets, and we could use the word teacher, uh, pastor, or prophet in there. I think that would be fair. But prophets really aren't around anymore, and so we have teachers or, uh, in that regard. And there's other positions that he lists, and, and his point is that these, u- these different positions have their own unique gifts to execute that job. This goes back to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11-13, through 13, where he speaks about the gifting of people to the church for its edification and growth. And he, gave, he himself gave some to be possible, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. That's why God has equipped certain people to do certain things. 
And whatever gift that God has given, whether it be help, the idea of the word help is to, to, to just you know, come alongside and help out with a need. Administration. There are people who are gifted in that way. And so God has, has given them to the church for that purpose, to administrate, to serve in that area. And Paul says, well, but the body needs those different positions to function so it can function well. That's why he asks those rhetorical questions, verse 29 and 30. Do, are all apostles? Are all Nobody's occupying the same office. Not everybody can do the same thing. So we need diversity and we need people to work in different ways so we can function well. And in doing that, he points, pulls up lastly, he says, we are to excel in our positions in the body. This is what we're supposed to do. We're to excel in our positions. Verse 31, but earnestly desire the best gifts and yet I show you a more excellent way. The word earnestly desire here means to positively and intensely be interested in something. It's a command here. and It shows that we're supposed to continually be interested in doing more and doing better. Now, there's many views on what this means. I mean, you can look at the commentaries and find so many different views on, okay, what does it mean to earnestly desire the best gifts? Does it mean to, to strive to add more gifts to one's repertoire? Does it mean to strive to do everything? I think the best way to understand this is that Paul is encouraging his readers to do their best with the gifts God has given them. Okay? When God gives a gift, he doesn't always give you the complete way of doing it, does he? There's responsibility on your part. Some of you have gifts of helping, and we've seen that in these past few months. But that, I would dare say that's something that you've grown in or learned in and practiced. So there's responsibility on your part to exercise that gift. It doesn't just happen on its own. And, and Paul does this to Timothy. If you look, there's a couple times in, in First and Second Timothy where Paul encourages Timothy to exercise his gift. First Timothy 4.14 Do not neglect the gift that is in you which was given to you by prophesying with the laying on the hands of the eldership. And 2 Timothy 1.6, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of hands. So, so God gives gifts to his church through, through people, but those people need to exercise those gifts. And that's why I think Paul says, do your best. Work on those gifts that you've been given and excel at them. And then he ends verse 13, or chapter 12, which I, I think the last part of verse 31 probably goes with chapter 13, but nonetheless I'll mention it here. But he says there's, there's still a more excellent gift you can achieve, and that is the gift of love. And that's what chapter 13 is all about. That's the greatest gift that you can exercise. Excel, we need, but we still need to excel at our positions within the body. And that leads me to ask, I didn't put it on the, the PowerPoint, and that's my fault. But are you working at the gifts that God has given you? Are you working at whatever, whether you be you're, you're a, a teacher, or you do Sunday school, you help out in that way, are you working at developing that skill? Whether, whether you be just, you're just 
reading people on a Sunday morning? Are you are working at developing that to a more and more uh, incorporate other aspects to it? Are you working at the gifts that God has given you? Or are you just kind of just laying low? Are you being the steward who just buries his talent and goes away and thinks God won't notice? I would encourage you to develop those gifts God has given you to excel at them. Unfortunately, many churches today are found fighting among themselves rather than being in unity with each other. We've seen and heard churches split. We've seen and heard how churches have just fallen apart just because one problem has started and therefore the whole unity of the body is compromised. What happens is a failure to understand how important unity is. That's why, that's why Paul writes here in 12 through 31 about the importance of unity and he gives those four reasons. Well, it's our review for us. We're members of his body. That's why we need to be unified. We're part of the body of Christ and so we need to be unified. We're placed by God in the body as he chooses. God has put us in those different positions for a reason. We're dependent upon each other. We need each other in daily life. We cannot do without each other. And the last reason is we are to excel in our service. As we serve God in different ways, we're to to push for excellence in those gifts and in those ministries. So as we look to a new year, here in 2021, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know if lockdowns are going to continue. We don't know if political situation is going to change. But I would urge us to make the effort as a church body to be a unified family of God, regardless of what we face. Can we do that this year? Be unified as we labor and minister until Jesus comes.